I just say to him and Pence, why didn't you speak up when it mattered? Why didn't you speak up when you might have been able to make a difference? Why wait to launch these lame and doomed primary campaigns now in the hope that that's going to turn things around somehow and, and make history view you in a better light? Welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Welcome back to America Explained, the podcast about US foreign policy and politics for an international audience. I almost feel like I need to start calling this podcast the Trump Indictment Show. Trump is getting indicted left, right, and center. There's been another instance of this since I last released an episode, and I've got to cover it. It's the most important story in America right now, one of the most important and bizarre and consequential stories in all of American history. So I'm going to spend this episode, half of it at least, talking about Trump's latest indictment in Georgia. This one differs from the other cases he faces in several ways. It's much more difficult for him to get out of this case somehow. So I'm going to talk through the consequences of that, how this case looks different to the others, and how it might unfold over the next year. Then in the second half of the episode, I'm going to zoom out a little bit, focus on the Republican primary, where it's at right now. This episode's going to be released on the same day as the first GOP presidential debate. I think that debate is going to be a complete non-event. That's why I feel very comfortable releasing a podcast before the debate happens, because Trump most likely is not going to show up to that debate. It's just going to be all of these people who are at 10% or less in the polls, arguing with one another. It's kind of like if the proverbial rats got together on the sinking ship and they had a debate, but none of them was able to actually say that they thought that the ship should not sink. That's what it's going to be like watching these people on the debate stage, all stepping around, tiptoeing around the main issue that they face, which is Donald Trump's complete dominance in the polls and their own irrelevance. So thanks as always for listening to America Explained. If you enjoyed the podcast. We really hope that you tell a friend about it. That's help helps the show to grow. We've experienced a lot of growth over the last month. A lot of new listeners have come our way. That's always awesome. I love to see it. It really fuels my passion for this project. So if you can help to get the word out, I really appreciate that. There's also an America Explained newsletter that's published twice a week. You can subscribe to that by navigating in your podcast app to the show notes of this episode, and you'll find a link to subscribe and you get a 15% discount from the paid version of that newsletter if you use that link. There's also a free version of the newsletter which brings you plenty of posts as well, so we hope that you'll check that out. So thanks again for listening. So I guess the thing that ties these two parts of the episode that I'm recording today together is the fact that Trump is politically seemingly more dominant than he's ever been, at least within the Republican Party, but his legal woes and, and frankly his future outside of the realm of the Republican primaries looks bleaker than it ever has. He faces now so many very serious criminal cases against him, which I've discussed in previous episodes, that really his only chance of escaping, probably spending the rest of his life in prison, 
prison is by winning the presidential election next year. Because if he wins the presidential election, then he can pardon himself of the crimes in most of these cases. Now that doesn't hold for this latest indictment in Georgia, which just to put a pin in that, I'm going to return to that in a second. But most of these cases, Trump can pardon his way out of them. So what is really or what should be a legal question, a question about the rule of law, is Trump found by a jury of his peers to be guilty or innocent, is actually also simultaneously a political question. Because if voters choose to send Trump to the White House next November, they are essentially voting to give him the power to cancel these cases, to pardon himself, or if the cases have not yet concluded, to basically just order the Justice Department to drop these cases against him. Now, this makes the Georgia case really, really important because this is the one case or the one very serious case. There's also a case in New York, but that's probably not going to result in serious um, charges or serious uh, penalties for Trump. But this case in Georgia is very, very serious. Trump could spend the rest of his life in prison if he's found guilty of these crimes, and Trump cannot ever pardon himself of these crimes. And the reason for that is that this case has been bought under Georgia state law rather than federal law. So presidents can only pardon themselves for federal crimes, but in Georgia, the power to pardon lies with a board that's appointed by the governor. And that board typically only uses the power to pardon in very, very unusual circumstances or very, very rare circumstances. And it usually requires the person who's pardoned to have already served their sentence, already served their time in prison. So that's, you know, it's just kind of something that clears someone's name. It's not something that actually stops them from serving time in prison. So the precise things that Trump has been charged with in Georgia it's basically a microcosm of the federal case that we talked about in the last episode. That case was to do with January 6th and to do with Trump's campaign before January 6th to steal the election, to use illegal means, corruptly use the power of his office to interfere with the election and, and steal it. Now, in Georgia, that took a number of specific forms. It involved Trump trying to get various officials in the state to basically collude with him in stealing this election. So he famously made a phone call to the Secretary of State in Georgia. That's the official that's responsible for running the election. And he said to this official, Brad, I just need you to find me 11,000 more votes. Basically acknowledging that he knew he had lost the election. He didn't have the votes to win, but he's trying to pressure this official to corruptly come up with those votes. Other things that Trump did in Georgia, so there was also a fake electors scheme. We talked about that in the last episode. There was also illegal intimidation and pressure on poll workers on people who had been working to administer the election. So one official in Georgia had to go into hiding and lose her job after she was accused of illegally tampering with the election results, and, and she didn't. So there was a video of her that the Trump officials were spreading around claiming that she was passing a USB drive with some kind of, you know, election altering information between another poll worker. Rudy Giuliani, when he watched this video, said it looked 
like they were passing vials of heroin or cocaine. It was actually a mint that she was passing to the person who was working next to her. So all of these ways that they tried to pressure the election, they tried to attack the people who were responsible for administering the election, that's what Trump's been charged with here. And interestingly, also, unlike in the federal case, many other people have been charged as part of this conspiracy. So Rudy Giuliani faces charges in this case. Mark Meadows, who a former Republican congressman who became Trump's chief of staff, he faces charges in this case. There's 19 people overall. So the DA, the district attorney, that's the lawyer responsible for bringing these cases, she is really not messing about here. She has thrown the book at these people. She's charged them under something called RICO, which is the racketeering law, which basically allows you to, this law is usually used to take down the mob, you know, like the mafia. So they basically link all these different people together and say they're all responsible for being part of this criminal conspiracy that tried to break American law. And they're all jointly responsible for the crimes that were, you know, part of this effort. It's a very, very serious case. Trump's only gambit here, the only thing that he can really do to try to run away from this is to, again, like with the other cases, delay the start of this trial until he's president. Again, that's assuming that he does win the presidency again, which is obviously a really, really big if. But if, you know, he delays the start of the trial until after January 2025, he's back in the White House, he's likely then to try to use the power of the presidency to claim immunity from prosecution. He will perhaps claim that in his view of the Constitution, although of course we know Donald Trump's never read the Constitution, but his lawyers will claim that in Donald Trump's view of the Constitution, it's not legal, it's not constitutional for a president to stand trial at all, even for a state offense. And we really don't know what would happen at that point. That That is definitely not so far a constitutional principle that's been established in American law, but it's also the case that no president has ever been charged for a state crime previously. So likely this question would go to the Supreme Court. Obviously Trump appointed a great many members of this Supreme Court. It's a very Republican Supreme Court. Now that doesn't mean that the Supreme Court has Trump's personal interests at heart, that it's really going to necessarily act to defend Trump's personal interests, but many people people on that court do hold a very, very strong view of presidential power. They believe that the president should, in large part, be immune to accountability. So it's possible that they would vote his way, and it's possible that they would choose to shield him from, you know, the consequences of his actions in this case. But it's much, much less sure than it is with the other cases where Trump can just pardon himself. So, you know, Trump is really, really going to try to push this case back as far as possible to try to engineer some kind of outcome like this. He's already suggested that the case shouldn't begin until 2025. His lawyers are saying that, you know, there's just too much information for us to go through here. The government's provided us with too many documents and too many witnesses and too much evidence, and it's going to take us at least 18 months to read all of that stuff and and be ready to defend Trump in court. They will try as many of these kind of tactics as they can to delay it. Now, 
So the situation here is much less clear than it is with the other cases. It's the one that has the highest risks for Trump if things go badly. It's also politically pretty damaging for Trump as well, I might add, because this is all unfolding in Georgia, and Georgia is a very, very important swing state nowadays. Trump lost Georgia in 2020, which was a real shock. Republicans have won Georgia in presidential elections since the 1990s every single time. You know, as the South has become solidly Republican. Nobody thought that Democrats were going to be winning Georgia, perhaps for a decade or so. But it happened in 2020, and you could think that that was a fluke, or maybe it was the start of a trend, that actually, as Atlanta, which is the biggest city in Georgia, grows and grows, and as it diversifies, that it's making it possible for Democrats to win that state, because more of their voters are living in Georgia than ever. In 2024, if Republicans don't win Georgia, it becomes much more difficult for them to win the White House. And everything that Trump's doing here is making it much, much more difficult for him to win Georgia. I mean, if you think that we, just reading the American national media, are saturated with too much news about these court cases, in Georgia, it's like ground zero for coverage of this trial. It involves so many prominent personalities in that state. It involves the governor, it involves the secretary of state, it involves the chairman of the Republican Party. And there is a lot of evidence that this scandal is really turning off the type of white suburban swing voters that Trump needs to win this state in 2024. The, this type of voter deserting him is how he lost it last time. In 2020, there were plenty of people in the suburbs of Atlanta that voted for Republican congressional candidates, but they voted for Joe Biden for president. And what that shows is that you have voters who are basically Republicans, they're basically conservative, but they are sick of Trump. They view Trump as a danger to the country, or they view Trump as not sufficiently committed to their agenda, and they don't want to see him in the White House. Maybe they don't particularly wish Joe Biden, you know, like super well, they don't love Joe Biden, but they maybe are happy with a situation where the government is divided, so they'll vote for Republicans in Congress, but they won't vote for Trump for the White House. Now, you know, Trump has done nothing since 2020 to change his fortunes with this type of voter in Georgia. And this case been in the news for the next, you know, 12 months or more is not going to help either. This just kind of reinforces a point that I've made on this podcast before, which is that some people, like people that defend Trump, like to argue that he's somehow this political genius who saw something about the American public that nobody else saw and put together this winning coalition, you know, in a way that nobody thought could be done in American politics. But I think the story is actually very different, that this is a guy who is basically political kryptonite. <laughs> you know, he won the 2016 election against a very weak candidate on the side of the Democrats, and he's led his party to a terrible performance in every election since, in 2018, in 2020, in 2022. And it looks likely he's going to do that again in 2024. Why then does does the Republican Party stick with him? Well, I'll come to that in the second half of the episode after this break. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform.
so I just opened up the polls for the Republican primary right now. Here's where we are as of August 21st, which is when I'm recording this episode. Donald Trump is at 52%. Ron DeSantis, the guy that the media was hailing as the man that was going to take down Donald Trump only six months ago, he's at 15%, three times lower than Trump. Vivek Ramaswamy who is frankly just like a joke candidate. I'll talk about him more in a minute, but he's at 9%. Mike Pence, a former vice president of the United States, is at 4.7%. Nikki Haley, a former US ambassador to the United Nations, a former governor of South Carolina, she's at 3.5%. Chris Christie, former governor of New Jersey, 3.5%, and Tim Scott, sitting US senator, 3.4%. So those are, you know, the people in this primary mostly are not a joke. They are mostly people who have been traditionally successful in American politics in the way that usually prepares someone to make a serious run at the presidency and perhaps become a presidential candidate. Ron DeSantis, of course, is the twice-elected governor of Florida, tremendously popular in his home state. He just romped home to victory there with a 20-point margin, and yet he's stuck at 15% and Trump is at at 52%. So, like, what is going on here? Now, it's pretty clear to me that all of this stuff that's been happening in terms of Trump's court cases and his indictments and going right back to when he was raided by the FBI over the documents case, which was, what, last year, I think now? All of this stuff has really helped Trump. It's really, really meant that he is in the news all of the time. He dominates media coverage of the Republican Party. Almost every story about the Republican primary is about Trump's dominance or about his legal troubles. And that really mobilizes his base, the people who are minded to support him already, because it fits so perfectly into this narrative that Trump is beset by the dark forces of the deep state and the liberals and the media and they're all out to get him and you know take him down by whatever foul means that they can this narrative is just so perfect for trump and it's so difficult for the other candidates to do anything with you know you can try to take the approach of well in fact yeah let's look at the top three candidates below trump so the second is ron DeSantis. now the way that ron DeSantis has tried to deal with this problem of taking down trump is that he tried to suck up to trump voters as much as possible. I think that the DeSantis view of what was going to happen here was that basically Trump was just going to implode somehow. He would self-destruct because his legal troubles would become so great or, you know, the stress of it would just make him keel over with a heart attack or something. And then Ron DeSantis would step in as the mini Trump, as the guy that was kind of the successor and the person that Trump's voters would turn to after Trump had left the scene. Now, that is maybe a good strategy if Trump is indeed going to have a heart attack or if Trump did indeed have some shame and these legal troubles were really going to make Trump drop out of the race, then maybe this strategy would have worked. But DeSantis had no strategy for actually taking down Trump. He, you know, he, he's scared to criticize Trump because he knows that the only way that he can win is by persuading a big chunk of Trump's voters to come over to him. So if you want to persuade these people who love Donald Trump, 
who have stuck by him even though he's done all of this crazy stuff, then you can't go bad-mouthing him. You can't go attacking him. And that's where DeSantis has just really, really failed. Now, that's not to say that attacking Trump would have worked out any better, because the fact is that there's not room in the Republican Party for two Trumps. Trump is dominant. Trump has that segment of the GOP demographic locked down completely. There's nothing DeSantis can do about that. And you know, he just doesn't have a plan. He's, he's trying now because his campaign is cratering so badly. He's relaunched it. He's going to focus more on the economy and law and order and the border. But I mean, get in the queue. Those are just standard Republican themes. Those are the themes of every other Republican who's tried to take down Donald Trump and failed. So, you know, that the DeSantis approach, the suck-up approach, that really, really doesn't work. Now, the person who's polling third right now, Vivek Ramaswamy, he's a he's an interesting guy. And I well, I mean interesting as in it's interesting that he's got to this point where he is in the Republican primary. He's he's Asian American, he's of South Asian descent. He made a lot of money in um the biotech industry. And then he kind of transformed himself into this warrior against wokeness. He took this very, very fabled and very, very well-worn path to to um, a position in the Republican primary by basically going through Fox News, by through conservative media. He made himself the kind of person that Fox called up to come and talk about wokeism and talk about all of these cultural issues. And then he went on those shows, he got people to know him, and that's how he kind of built up this following among the primary electorate. Now, I think he's following a really, really standard trajectory that we've seen with so many um, primary candidates in the past, where they have this burst of media interest because there's, you know, there's something a bit different, something a bit interesting about them. So in his case, He's an Asian American in the Republican Party. He's a business owner, so he's kind of a political outsider. And he's really, really leaning into these woke issues. And the GOP and conservative media love to have a person of color come on and talk about how, you know, racism doesn't exist in America and it's all made up by the left and white people are the ones who really suffer, you know, and all this kind of stuff. So he's made himself interesting, but he has absolutely zero strategy for winning this primary. I mean, I don't even think that in his mind he thinks that he's going to win this primary. He sucks up to Trump, if anything, even more than DeSantis does, and he's just, he's doggedly sticking to doing so, even as things get, get worse for Trump. Recently, DeSantis has started to say a few things about, oh, you know, it would be nice if we could move on from Trump's problems, whereas Ramazvami is just saying, if I get elected, I will pardon Trump. Trump, I will bend over backwards to do everything I can to please Donald Trump. And I'm pretty sure that Ramazvami's goal is to try to get a position in a Trump administration, or perhaps try to become Trump's vice presidential candidate. There's just no other reason that could possibly exist for this level of sucking up to Trump, other than some kind of scheme like that. It's also worth mentioning that, you know, Ramazvami is, he has some very, very, very unpleasant opinions. He's been described as fascist curious by some commentators, and I, you know, think that that's a fair thing to say. One of his proposals was that the voting age would be increased to 25, and that people would only be able to vote um, in, in elections under 25 if they were either in the military, they were a first responder, so that's like a police person, or 
someone in the ambulance service, or if they pass a civics test. Now, this is the kind of idea that really appeals to reactionaries, you know, who don't like young people and, you know, think that young people voting is bad for democracy because young people don't know what they're talking about. But, I mean, in the context of American history, you also really have to understand this as essentially being a literacy test. I mean, that's what a civics test is. You're testing how educated somebody is, you know, how good they are at forming sentences and forming arguments. And this kind of test has been used all throughout American history to exclude people of colour from voting. You know, African Americans, people from other minorities, are much less likely to receive a good education. They're much less likely to be able to do well on that civics test. So, you know, Ramazvami is really pushing some super reactionary ideas that we've actually seen before in American politics and which are, you know, essentially a, a form of, of, of trying to, you know, stop people of color from voting. And I mean, he has a ton of other unsavory opinions as well. I really don't want to spend much time talking about him because I think he's kind of a flash in the pan. The, you know, he's gone up in the polls a bit over the last week or so. And I think that's more a sign of just like DeSantis is just flaming out, not because there is something intrinsically interesting about Vivek Ramaswamy. He's still not even polling at 10%. You know, this is 9%. In most primaries, that would be someone that you don't even bother talking about, but this is just such an unusual primary that the media is looking for interesting stories and new angles on this event. Now, the third person, the you know, the person who is his third behind Trump, so fourth overall, is of course Mike Pence, Trump's former vice president. Now, Pence, to his credit, is now being very, very direct in his criticisms of Trump. I think that Pence has basically decided, and I don't know if he's doing this for his personal reasons of faith, because he is, in his own eyes, according to his own version of Christianity, a very committed Christian. And maybe he sees this as some form of redemption, that he's now you know, even though he stood by Trump while Trump did so many, many terrible things that now he's finally trying to draw some kind of line under his involvement in the Trump presidency and his involvement in that period in American history. Or maybe he thinks, you know, it's possible that he thinks that somehow it you know, if he just kind of states the truth, that that's going to convince Republican primary voters to come around to him. I don't think that's going to happen. You know, Pence is, I mean, he's just, he has no chance in this primary. Whatever reasons he's doing it for, he's not going to win. You know, he gets booed in many places that he goes to. You know, this is the guy that people were chanting should be hanged on January 6th. So the idea that the Republican Party, that that base is going to vote for him is just nonsense sensical, but he shows that the direct criticism of Trump route is also a road to nowhere. If you criticize Trump so directly, then you just get, you know, ignored or ridiculed or insulted by the GOP primary electorate. There's really nothing to be done by going directly after Trump, except perhaps salvaging your conscience somehow, you know, and that's like Chris Christie, another guy in this primary, he's at 3.5%. He also stood very close by Trump. He was involved in many of the bad things that Trump did during his presidency. Now he's out there talking about how awful Trump is, how terrible his presidency was. And, you know, I just say to him and Pence, why didn't you speak up when it mattered? Why didn't you speak up when you might have been able to make a difference? Why 
wait to launch these lame and doomed primary campaigns now in the hope that that's going to turn things around somehow and, and make history view you in a better light? Because it's really, really not going to make history view you in a better light. You didn't stand up when there was something to be done. And now you're just wasting everyone's time, you know, with what these kind of ego driven campaigns, right? So that's, uh, you know, that's the state of the Republican primary. And in, you know, at least in kind of a political strategic sense, I don't fault most of these guys. I mean, you know, it's just the fact is that Trump has the Republican electorate locked down. There's nothing you can do about that. For as long as he is around, he's going to dominate this party just because people in that party do not think that he has done things that are beyond the pale. They don't think he's done things that mean that he deserves to get excommunicated from American politics. All the laws he's broken, all the offenses against the Constitution, that's okay with them. And that's a really, really dangerous thing for America. But there is no solution to that in this Republican primary. The only solution is the legal system and the general election. All right, so Thanks for listening to this episode of America Explained. For the next few episodes, I don't even care if Trump does something super crazy. We're going to get away from Trump. I'm going to bring you some good episodes about other things that are going on um, in US politics right now, perhaps some historical episodes. You know, let's just kind of exercise our minds a little bit, have a little fun before the relentless grind of this presidential campaign really gets underway. So thanks for tuning in. I hope to see you next time for the next episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained, which is brought to you by host Andy Gawthor and researcher, editorial assistant, and sometimes co-host Catherine Wood. If you like America Explained, please consider checking out our free newsletter, which you can find a link to in the show notes. That's all for this episode, and I look forward to speaking to you next time.